All right. Well, good morning. We are so glad you guys are here today with us. If you're new, we're especially glad you guys are here. Um, I am so tired. It's insane. Uh, I honestly thought about bringing a couch up here and just laying down and talking to you from the couch, and you would just have to be okay with it. And so uh, Grinchmas was this week. It was awesome. Uh, we had over 3, 000, about 3,000 people come through, and so I want to thank our volunteers. Can you guys thank them? Um, some of you were our volunteers, and we had so many who will give so many hours of their week, uh, not only during setup. It takes us five days to set up, two hours to tear down. It is a, a monster. Uh, we're so glad we did it, though, and we are looking forward to doing it next year and making it bigger and better. And so make sure that next year you are coming to Grinchmas, volunteering at Grinchmas, and being a part of what we do for the community. I have had two Red Bulls, and my heart is racing a little bit, uh, so I don't do energy drinks, so I'm, I really am okay, but uh, I am really tired, I can't tell you how much, but uh, it was so much fun, and then the storm came through the other night, got no sleep like most of you guys, I was up all night watching that, and so uh, it was just a great time. So a couple of other announcements as we get started. Uh, the budget, so every year uh, we are a church, and so, but we are also an organization and a business, so every year we release our budget for next year. Uh, it's available in the lobby or you can look at it on the app if you have the Journey app. Uh, we don't hide stuff around here, so all of the money that we uh, spend is on this and where it's planning on going. Uh, and so if you have any questions about this, you can talk to me, you can talk to Jill. We'd be happy to answer any questions about the spending uh, that we do every year. And so make sure and grab one of these if you're interested. If you don't give and participate with that, um, make sure that you uh, do. I just drank a Red Bull and I'm burping and so it's going to be really weird. And so just, you know, those times I tell you guys, I joke about it, but like my brain, I have two brains. I have the brain that says don't say it and the brain that says say it. And the brain that says say it almost always wins. And so... Uh, so anyway, so that's weird, I know. But anyway, so make sure to take this. There's also some fun facts about Journey this last year on the back. And so make sure and pick that up if you're interested. Like I said, if you want to par partner with us, uh, you can give through the offering things at the end of the hallways or also through the Journey app as well instead of recurring giving. Also, Christmas is coming up really, really quick. Uh, next Sunday, we will have regular services on the 19th at 10 and 11, 15. And then for Christmas Eve, what we're doing is just something a little different this year. We will have a Thursday service. At 7 o'clock, that's the 23rd, we realize a lot of people have Christmas Eve plans and Christmas Day plans, obviously. So we're offering one at 7 o'clock on Thursday, the 23rd, and then we're offering two of them on Friday, Christmas Eve at 7 and 9 o'clock. Uh, and so there will be child care for all of those and kids programming. There will not be middle school and high school. So the middle school and high schoolers will be in here with us. But there will be kids programming so you can bring your kids. Um, they can come in their pajamas, especially for the late service if they want. Uh, but we have a lot of fun with the Christmas Eve services. And those will be different than Sunday. So it's not all the same service. Christmas Eve will be their own special service. And on the 26th, which is Sunday, so Christmas is Saturday, there will be no services on the 26th. Uh, we are working right now on a special online service that you can follow along with your family, and we'll have some Christmas songs, and we'll have different staff members talking about Christmas and stuff like that. So if you want to have participate in that on the 26th, you can do that, or you can just sleep, um, because we're all going to need it after this holiday season. And so there will be no service on the 26th, and we'll remind you guys of that as well. And then today, this is really exciting, and we're glad to partner with this. Uh, if you guys went to Grinchmas, you noticed that there was a bus on your way out. That's the Dream Express. Uh, Lynette Ward runs that. She's a teacher over at Bullet Lick. 
uh, elementary school. And so she does that. That's like one of her passions. So she came to me this morning and she said, hey, I'm thinking about going down to Mayfield uh, next Saturday and handing out books. And she was like, but I want to be more than just books. So what she's wanting to do is take all kinds of toys and presents for kids. And so this week, we're going to be collecting that stuff. And we'll put that out on the app as well as on Facebook. And so we're taking uh, donations of Hot Wheels, Barbies, action figure stuffed animals. Make it new stuff. Don't give your old stuff, but new stuff that we can take down there and give out to those kids. As well as cookies. If you want to donate cookies as well, any type of cookies, she's going to take all that down there. We're going to give her all the hot chocolate and bottled water that she needs to hand out. Uh, She's not sure exactly where she's going. We're connecting her with a couple of schools down there, uh, but we're excited to partner with her in that. If you want to go with her, uh, she's going to need some help hauling all the stuff down, but also handing out the stuff. Uh, You can email dreamexpressbooks at gmail.com. We'll make that available on Facebook um, as well. All the proceeds that we collected from Grinchmas donations, we're also going to send with her uh, to be able to help out down there. And so there's a whole lot going on uh, with that, not only in Mayfield, but obviously and Bowling Green, some other communities. And so this is a great way for you to partner with somebody doing something. And so if you want to help out with that, either donations, or um, if you actually want to go with her, just email Lynette, and she would be glad to have you along. And that's next Saturday. And our plan is to go down that morning, come back that night, so it's not like a, a whole weekend type thing. So make sure and do that if you are interested. Now, this week, I think that's all the announcements. This week, we are in the second part of this series, and we are taking a deep dive into the whole story that we see unfold in Scripture. And so if you missed last week, go back and listen to it if you get some time. And so we're talking about this ancient story between us and God and the world that we find ourselves in. And so for some of you, some of the stuff today, I'm going to go through it fast, but it's going to be new information for you, maybe stuff you've never thought about or heard about. But it all starts from this one question we asked last week that we're going to ask every week and then we're going to answer eventually on the last week. And here's the question. Do you ever get the feeling the world isn't the way it's supposed to be? Right? And that's an obvious rhetorical question of yes. There seems to be something off. It's this deep tension this we feel, this wrestling. It's not a new thing. It's actually an ancient tension. It's an ancient problem, as we're going to discover. And so last week, we started the story, and we started with a tree, a temptation, a tragedy, and it ended with an act of mercy and grace that God gives. At the end of that story, and we're not going to dive into it a whole lot today, there's also a promise that's made in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's this little tiny nugget of a promise that God starts to play about a better future. We'll get into that later. But right after we ended our story last week, kind of with this this story of kind of how everything kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit with mankind, uh, we're introduced into a couple of new people. Uh, They're Cain and Abel, and maybe you've heard their names before, you're familiar with that story if you grew up in church or whatever. Um, And there's an interesting detail that comes out of their story. Now, what's fascinating to me when I study the Bible is if you study Genesis, especially this beginning part... It's only a few chapters. It's a few short pages. And yet these are people that live these lives that kind of start the story of mankind and humanity. And so what's fascinating sometimes to me is not only what's in the text, but what's not in the text. And today there's going to be a detail emerge that I love talking about. We've talked about it before that's really fascinating. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, Cain and Abel are brothers, the descendants of Adam and Eve. It says this, time passed. And Cain, who's the older brother, brought an offering to God. Now, this is the first time this idea is kind of presented in in the story, the idea of offering something to God. Now, what we understand traditionally is that when you bring an offering, what they're talking about is some type of a sacrifice. You're offering something that belongs to you to God. 
Now, the way that you would offer this is typically you would make some type of an altar. It could be a pile of rocks. It could be um, some wood. But you would build something up, and you would place whatever you're offering on the altar. Oftentimes, we'll see they would burn it because they believed that as this, this thing, whatever it was, whether it was crops like Cain or it was an animal like Abel, when it burns, as it burns, the smoke lifts, and that, that smoke is kind of lifting up to the gods because their belief the gods were above, okay? And, and so what's interesting, though, is this, and maybe you've never thought about this, but as you read the first four chapters up until this point, there's no mention or reference of God asking them to do this. At no point in the story does God say that you need to make these sacrifices that we can see. And there's volumes of books written about this idea, and I'll just save you the time of trying to read all of them. Um, I've read a few of them. And what they essentially come down to is this, and this is really an interesting idea. As we study ancient cultures, because the biggest thing we have to understand about the Bible, and this is something you should know, is that the Bible and the story of the Bible comes out of a region, but there's other stories that come out of that region as well. There's other ancient cultures. And in these ancient cultures, you find this pattern where these different civilizations that start around the same time, they all kind of have similar stories to some degree. And one of the similarities in their stories is this, that they start to realize, early man does, from whatever civilization they come through, that there are forces outside of them that seem to dictate the quality of their life. And here's what I mean by that. So they had these forces like the sun, the moon, the stars, the rain, the wind, the animals, the plants, eventually fire. Um, all of these things that they realize are vital to their survival. And they think that there's forces kind of controlling these things that go on. And what they realize is these forces can make life really easy or they can make things really difficult. Like I was thinking about this last night with this tragedy that happened throughout our state and like tornadoes. Like I mean, most of us were probably somewhat aware, um, especially if you watch the news at all, all right, that there was some storms coming in and we're familiar with what tornadoes are. And what's interesting is we can study that. We can find out where they're coming. They can predict this type of stuff. But imagine living in their culture without any of this type of stuff, especially in ancient times, and a tornado just comes. You would not say, well, I think there's an area of low pressure coming this way, and there seems to be a northwesterly thing, like Kevin Harded likes to tell us, you know, that causes all this. They would think that there was some type of force that caused this. Those forces eventually start to take on personalities, and eventually they become gods. Because these forces are more powerful than we are, we can't control these forces, and so these forces must be gods. And these forces, we're trying to figure out this balance of, are they for us? Are they against us? How do we keep their favor? Because they're either for us or against us. And so what we see in early ancient cultures, including this story, the idea arises that in order to appease the gods, we have to offer them something, that we have to give something to make sure that they know that we're grateful. And so early cultures, they take portions of their crop or portions of their flock, and they would sacrifice it. They would offer it up. And the idea is the gods are always up. The gods are somewhere else. And this is an important detail in our story. And so they decided the altar is the way to do this. We build some type of altar. And then what often happens on those altars is we sacrifice. Okay? And so this is kind of this idea, this early on thing. Now, there becomes all these questions with this system. 
Okay? And so how do we know what to alter or offer? What do we offer? When do we offer it? And so what we've also discovered is early on in the story of man, there's a certain group of people that rise up from within these cultures who happen to be experts on this very thing. And they become priests and they become sages and these people that are experts on what you have to offer the gods. And if you're willing to give them a cut, right, of what it is, They'll make sure that you're good with the gods. And so they start to explain things. They start to say this is what needs to happen, okay? And so this is within early human history. We see this. But within the the altar system, not just within our story that we see, but within all of these stories, there's a major flaw within the system. And here's the flaw. So let's say that things are going really well. Let's say that you you make your, your sacrifices to your gods, or in this case to God, and you make this the sacrifice, and you have a really good year. There's no crazy storms. The sun seems to rise and fall when it should. It doesn't get, seem to get too hot or too cold. Everything seems to go well. Or let's say you're going for a hunt. And one of the most fascinating things, especially guys that are hunters, you need to study the hunts they would go on, right? They didn't put, like, deer pee on them and go set in a stand. Like, they would go for, like, six months, and you may or may not come back with something. And it's just fascinating to start studying ancient cultures. But, but what would happen is... You know, you have these gods that control the hunt. And so you have to make sure they're good with you. And, and so there's this tension. Okay, so last year I offered this amount, and it was a really good year. And so I don't want to offer the same amount, because if I offer the same amount, the god may not think that I'm grateful, and so it may not go well. Or, or it's this thing, did I offer enough? Did I offer the right stuff? Did I do it the right way? Or, or how about this? What if you have a really good year? And you offer more, and then the next year you have a bad year. Well, what happened then? Are the gods mad at me? Did I do something wrong? And so what happens is there becomes this profound sense of anxiety and fear when it comes to how we deal with the gods. You never know where you stand. And so this is within ancient cultures, but let's be honest, this is even within our story, isn't it? Some of us, the tension that we feel is we don't know where we stand, or we don't think we know where we stand. And there's this anxiety of where do we stand with God? Is God for us? Is God against us? What seems to be going on in our world? And so at first, it starts with this idea of we're going to offer crops, we're going to offer some animals, we're going to offer some incense, we're going to do something to offer it to the gods. But eventually it gets to the point that other cultures come into the story and they say, well, that may not be enough. And so we have deep within human history, we have this series of of unfortunate things that happen. In fact, one of the early stories we see of the worshipers of Baal. I don't know if you heard of Baal, but he was one of the gods. And one of the things that their priest would often require is that in order to appease the Baal god, you have to mutilate your body. You have to cut yourself. Because it's not just enough to offer this stuff. You need to literally offer your own flesh, your own blood. There's a famous story of the goddess Sibel, and she is one of the female mother goddesses, and um, she often would require men to castrate themselves in order to appease her. And sometimes it wasn't enough that you just offered parts of yourself or you cut yourself. Sometimes it goes even deeper. Early in human history, we see the immersion of the god Molech. Molech is one of the most detestable of of all of the gods, but he's also one of the most powerful. And so in order to appease Molech, their cultures, they said, well, we've offered the crops, we've offered the animals, we've even offered some of ourselves, what else can we offer? 
And so within their culture, they started to sacrifice their own children. They said, well, surely this is a big enough sacrifice that if we offer our own children, then, then maybe the gods will finally be happy. And so the problem with the system is you never know where you stand with these gods, with these forces. Your life, your value, your being, are you doing enough? And I think that we can be honest, we can look at that and we can say, well, how primitive. I mean, how ridiculous that people thought that this could help control the gods or get the gods in their favor. And then it got me thinking a little bit more about us, right? We still have gods. We just call them by different names, don't we? We have the god of success, the god of acceptance, the god of beauty, the god of popularity, the god of wealth. And we still have altars. The altars just happen to be our lives. And so we keep investing, we keep sacrificing, we keep giving to these gods on the altars of our life, hoping that we'll be good enough, hoping that we'll be accepted. I mean, we think about like a cultural thing that we have where people cut themselves and hurt themselves. I mean, the worshipers of Baal did that. Or, or how about this? I mean, we look at child sacrifice, the story of Molech, and he wasn't the first. We study this throughout ancient cultures, even within some that just ended a few thousand years ago that we see with the Aztecs and the Mayans and all of this. We think, how could anybody sacrifice their child? How could someone sacrifice their family? And I'll be honest with you. I see people sacrificing their family all the time to be successful, to have wealth. So it's not gone away, it's just more um, modern, it's less primitive. We sacrifice to these gods all of the time to feel approval. And so we have the same gods, we just have a different understanding of them. And that creates the system, and that creates the flaw, because there's all this anxiety that all of us feel. Are we good enough? Have we done enough? We never know where we stand with the gods. Are they for us? Are they against us? And our story, I mean, think about our story. We, we have one God and we have one true God that we believe. If, if God exists, and some of you are still figuring that part out and wrestling through that, I get it, I'm there. Is he for us? Now, what's so fascinating, and while we're going through this deep dive, and we've done this before, of the story of the Bible, is what's so fascinating about this story is it's not detached from time and space. And as you read the Bible, that will greatly help you understanding it, that this takes place and is woven within human history. The story that we see in the Bible is also the story that we see of us. God works within human history, or maybe it's us working within God's history. So back to this original story, Cain and Abel, things really go off the rails, and, and so Cain offers a sacrifice, and for whatever reason, it, it, and what we study is it's probably because of what's going on within him, this turmoil within him, it's not accepted, and so he gets really upset, and he actually kills his brother Abel, and the first murder that we see happens within the Bible of a brother killing a brother, which there's all kinds of other things that come out of that story, but, but here's what this story tells us, and it goes back to what we talked about last week. All of us in this room and watching online and everybody that's ever read the story, we all have a choice of what type of world we're creating. We have a choice of what type of life we're creating. And in this story, what we see is that we have this offering of where we can offer something to contribute to the beauty and wonder of the world and what God is doing, or we can contribute to the chaos and destruction of the world. And Cain chooses to 
contribute to the destruction. And over the next four chapters of the Bible, which we don't have time to read, what we see is there starts to be this downward spiral of men making decisions on what type of world they're going to create. And it's bleak. And then Genesis chapter 6 comes along. And this is a, this is a chapter that you won't hear a lot of sermons about because it's so interesting but also hard to process. And in Genesis chapter 6, early on within human history, we found this heartbreaking passage. And many of you may not even know this exists. But in Genesis chapter 6, as the downward spiral of humanity continues to go, early on in the story, it didn't take us long to jack it up, okay? Here's what it says. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Aren't you glad we're past that point? Here it is. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. That when God saw the chaos and destruction that we had made of the creation that he gave us, and he gave us the ability to create and add to the story, do you know what we did? And we can look at this and we can say, those terrible people. And then I think about myself and the way that I've contributed to the story. And the things that I think, and the things that I say, and the things that I do. So right after this, we see the story of Noah. And in the story of Noah, there becomes this point where God's like, okay, we're going to have to start this thing all over. And whether you believe the story literally happened or it's figurative, the point of the story is this, is that it gets so bad, and it breaks God's heart so much that he says, we need to restart this. And at the end of the story, do you know the very first thing that Noah does? He walks onto a mountain, and he builds an altar, and he makes a sacrifice. And then in the 12th chapter of the Bible, we, we find the beginning of the story of Abraham. And Abraham is this story that, listen, and this is one of the things that's fascinating about the Bible, is the story of Abraham is this. He's told by God that one day his descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky, and everyone will know his name. And here's what's crazy. You can go just about any culture and religious group in the world, and do you know who they know? Abraham. Because the three largest religious groups in the world all trace their descendants back to the story of Abraham. It's a promise that came true. Now, within his culture, what they have to understand is that for him, just like everybody else, because this is an ancient primitive story, the gods are still kind of confusing to people. And so the gods are somewhere else. The gods do not dwell among us. And definitely the gods do not talk to us. And then in this story, all of a sudden, we hear this man who hears the voice of God, this divine voice. And what's fascinating is Abraham comes out of the area of Mesopotamia in the Sumerian tribe, and specifically in this area called Ur. Now, what's fascinating is God tells him that he's going to bless him, and one day his name will be known by everybody. And he also says that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. What's fascinating is in this particular region in Ur and Mesopotamia, the greatest of the gods that they worshipped was a god named Dinger, who was the god of the stars. This god uses other gods as props in his story. 
God tells Abraham he's going to leave his father's household, which basically in their world means you leave. It's not like you just leave your dad's house. It's basically that you're leaving behind this old way of thinking and you're being invited into a new way. There's this famous ancient Jewish story about the night that Abraham leaves. And it says that the night that he leaves, he's packing up all of his stuff. And we, we've heard this story before, or I've told you before. But he, he sees that he's leaving, and he sees all of his father's idols on the shelf in this room. And it's all these wooden idols that his father has made. And the story goes that, that he gets this idea. He's going to take all of these idols because now he understands who God is, and he's going to break all of these idols and destroy them. And so he takes an axe, and he starts cutting apart all of the idols and leaves them all over all the ground destroyed. And then he has this brilliant idea. He takes the axe, and he puts it in the, the hands of the last idol that he didn't destroy. And the story goes that they wake up the next morning, and he's about to leave, and his father walks in and he says, What's happened? All of these idols, all of my gods have been destroyed. And Abraham says, well, I think it's pretty obvious that one did it, you know? I think he got mad and killed the rest of them. And his father says, no, you don't understand. Those are made of wood. I built them myself. And Abraham says, then why do you bow down to them? Because this is a story of a God who's different, who interacts. They couldn't even build a house, as we see later in the story, to contain him. And Abraham's invited into something completely new. Now, Abraham is told that he's going to have these descendants. But the problem is that him and his wife, he's old in age, have not had kids yet. And so the problem is that they're older in years. And Abraham makes the mistake of telling God how old his wife is, and so, uh, which is not a good idea, guys. And so, um, so they come up with all these ways. They're going to work around it. And they have a few mishaps that we'll talk about another time. But eventually he has a son. And his son is born, and he loves his son. His son is not only the, the future, but is also one of the most important things that's ever been a part of his life. And so the story continues on for a little while, and all of this blessing comes to Abraham. And then in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis, God looks at Abraham one day, and he tells him that he has to offer his son as a sacrifice. And if you read the Bible for the first time, or you weren't familiar with this story, you, you might be tempted to say, what? Like, God wants Abraham to kill the son that he promised him, that all of this promise is based upon. And the exact wording in the Bible is this. God asks him to kill your son whom you love. What's fascinating about that line is it's the first time in the Bible the word love is used. And it's speaking about a father who's asked to sacrifice his son. And so Abraham hears this. And what's fascinating to me about this story, as earth-shattering as it would be for me and for you, to hear a voice from God say that we should sacrifice our son, Right? I mean, this is something that, that you hear stories about on the news where crazy people get locked away for the rest of their lives. But for him, it wasn't that earth-shattering. Because, of course, the gods can ask for anything. This is what you do. You have to keep the gods on your side. You have to keep the gods appeased because we don't know where the gods stand. And so if God tells me I have to sacrifice my son, that's what I'm going to do. And the story tells us that he does this, and he's willing to do this. 
And what's fascinating is this. The Bible says that because he was willing to do this, he was a good man. Because he was willing to kill his son. I mean, can you imagine if we like flannel graph this story for all the kids in the back right now? You know, hey, your parents might kill you one day because God said so. So why is he okay with this? Because it's what the gods may ask of you someday. But this story is not about the other gods. This is about a different god. And so they climb up the mountain. And there's this really morbid verse in the middle of the story, if you read it, where his son looks at him and he says, where's the sacrifice? I mean, it's weird, right? And his dad says, no, God will provide. So they get to the top of the mountain, and he ties his son down. I mean, I can't, as a father, you just can't even imagine the, the, the logic here. And the story says right before he's about to sacrifice his son, God stops him. And he says that God provides the sacrifice, which leads to a whole lot of questions, right? Is this whole thing just a prop? Is the altar and the sacrificial system, is it just a prop leading into a greater story that's about to be told? This isn't about the goodness of Abraham. Maybe it's about the goodness of God, that this is a God who gives to us, who provides for us. Now, you hear that, and you are not shocked by that at all. You have to understand when this story first came out in this ancient world, this was unheard of, that a God may have your best interest in mind. That a God may be a God that's willing to provide for you. Right after the book of Genesis, we had the book of Exodus, which we'll get into later, but then we had the book of Leviticus. Now, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, which I'm assuming most of us haven't, the book of Leviticus is if you ever get this idea to you're going to read the Bible in a year, you ever seen that like on an app and you're like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Leviticus is about where most people just quit, all right? It's a hard read until you understand what's going on. See, the book of Leviticus, again, this story takes place within human history. And so imagine this, you're primitive people, and the whole time there's this anxiety, as we talked about, you don't know what to offer, how much to offer to God, and there's all this tension and all this worry. And then God comes along and gives us a letter, a book written by men, inspired by God, that explains everything you have to do. So you don't have to feel the tension. You don't have to feel the anxiety. And you may think, well, that seems pretty primitive. Well, it was. But this is the first time that something like this comes along where, listen, this is actually a thing where the book literally starts with this idea where God says to people, come near to me. Do this and come near to me. The invitation of a God who's not distant, but one that actually wants to draw near to his people. What's fascinating about the book of Leviticus is as you start to read some of these offerings that are made, there's all these different things. One of the early offerings that we read about in the book of Leviticus is the one that's offered for sin and guilt. Now, we read that and we go, well, yeah, of course. But nothing like that existed. The idea that you could offer a certain sacrifice and that there be some type of peace and reconciliation that exists between you and God that God wants to be so close to you that he wants your conscience to be wiped clean so that you feel like you can draw close to him? Or how about this one? There's another one that we read about 
where what you would do is you would take an animal and you would sacrifice half of it to God and you'd take the other half. And with the other half of the animal, you would take that sacrifice and you would make a meal. And then you would invite your neighbors and your family and your friends over and you'd eat this meal together. And it was called a peace meal, which is the idea that if you take this meal and we eat it together, whatever problems we had before, they don't exist anymore. And you may say that, okay, well, yeah, that's what me and my buddies do. We go to Panera Bread, and we get a pizza, and we hash it out, and we cry. Boys don't cry, but, you know, we cry, we talk about our feelings and all that stuff, and everything's good. Okay, yeah, we understand that. You have to understand that didn't exist in this world, and yet God sets the plan for it. It was unheard of. It was completely progressive and groundbreaking. It may seem primitive to us, but for the time, it was unheard of. And so the system continues because God wants to be in relationship with his people. And so they offer sacrifices and they do all of these things. But then the problem is this. Just like everything that men get involved with, it turns toxic. Men throughout human history, and it's almost always men, are known for abusing power. Using God and the gods for fame and fortune. And so the system grows into a machine. And eventually, it's not just the altar system. Eventually, it becomes the temple system. And so you have these priests, and their duty is, as we said earlier, to kind of explain to everybody what has to happen. And this system becomes this overwhelming thing. And it eventually gets to the point that we see kind of around the New Testament comes along. The system is so big. They said when they would build temples, they would actually have to build drainage systems out of the temple because there was so much blood flowing from the temple that they had to have a way to drain it. They said during the week of the atonement that often the streets around the temple would run red with blood. And so what happened is people started to realize they could make a profit off this. That they could upcharge for the animals or sell these animals or people don't have to come and do all of this. And then the priest started to realize that, hey, you know what? I can take a cut of this. And I said I sacrificed this, but really I kept it for me. And it becomes this huge toxic system based on violence and power and wealth and fear, and confusion, and the priests, and these early cultures, it reinstates anxiety and fear. There's even points in the Old Testament, you may not know this, where God calls out the system and says, he even says one of them, he says, it's not like the blood of bulls and goats can do anything. At one point, I love what Hosea says, and this is the Eugene Peterson version of it, he says this, he goes, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. And what's fascinating, leave that verse up there. When you take that verse and you understand what God's saying through the prophet Hosea, and you go back to the beginning story, what does God want with Adam and Eve? Relationship. Did you know that after Cain kills Abel, the very first thing that God does is give him another act of mercy and grace? He even warns them before he does it that if you continue down this path, Because he wants us. He wants our lives. He wants to know us. He doesn't want to be far from us. And so what we realize in the story is that the system is broken. And because God is good at taking broken things and turning them into something beautiful, he changes it. And he calls upon an ancient promise that was made a long, long time ago at the very beginning of the story. And in this ancient promise, some questions have to be asked. 
of what's going to happen. And what is God going to do? Now, the early Christians, once this unfolds, what's about to happen and what does happen, they write about this event that takes place. They write about what happens through this promise that's made. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this in 926, but he, speaking of Jesus, who we'll get into next week, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. What a great line, right? How would it be if they said, you were the culmination of the ages, right? That would be great. Nobody else liked it than me. All right, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Paul writes this in Colossians. And through him, God reconciled. So this word, everything. So what's fascinating about it is I wanted to to do a deep dive into it this week and and see what this word means. Because it's easy to say like all and everything. And so this word, one of the root words for it in the Greek would be the same word that they would use if a fire came in and consumed everything. Like that it's all consuming. That everything... Everything includes you and all the messed up stuff you bring in here and into your family and into your marriage. It includes you and your neighbor and their neighbor and me. And through him, God reconciled all of the mess that we've made of the story to himself. He made peace with all things. Now, the early Christians What they believed was that because of what Jesus does, it's not about if you do a bunch of steps. It's not about anymore if you build an altar and you sacrifice the right amount and you make sure it's the right thing and you do all this, then he'll accept you. No, for them, it was about God accepts you and loves you as you are because of what's happened. Jesus appeared at the culmination of the ages. See, remember, the whole start of this story was this. We never know where we stand with the gods, and so there's all this fear and anxiety. And for some of you, the fear and anxiety you feel about your life right now is you don't know where you stand with God, which is the beauty of what Paul writes in Romans 8. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Well, if you want to know what wonderful things he just talked about, you should read the Bible. But then he says this, if God is for us, which means that God's not against us, which means that God's not angry with us, which means that God isn't wondering how it's going to work out. Listen, if God is for us, can you imagine how much pain and suffering has come from the anxiety from your anxiety, and to know that God is for you. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves in the story. Because so far, there's a tree, and a temptation, and a tragedy, and then there was a promise, and now there's an altar. What's fascinating about the altar is they had these priests that would have to go in and perform these duties and make sure the sacrifices were done right. We've talked about that. And much, much later in the story, the Gospel of Luke tells us about a priest. His name is Zechariah. 
And Zechariah, one day, he's going into the temple to perform his priestly duties. And so he's going to the altar to make his sacrifice. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to Zechariah. And what happens next is the most unexpected part of the story. But we don't have time to talk about it this week. Let's pray.